Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. In the early hours of February 6th, a pair of devastating earthquakes shook southern Turkey and northern Syria. The damage from these earthquakes is sort of hard to describe. Yes, there are numbers we can use. We can assess the death toll. We can count how many buildings have been destroyed or damaged, how many people have found themselves without a home. But none of these numbers can adequately explain how traumatic an event this is for the region, how much it might reshape the region. These earthquakes are just the latest chapter of a decade-long story of civil war and displacement that shows no sign of ending anytime soon. These earthquakes are just another chapter of a migration story. That's why I wanted to talk to Errol Yabake. He spent much of his childhood in Turkey. He is the director of the Project on Fragility and Mobility at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., and he joins me next. Welcome, Errol. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Ethan. Good to see you. Great to see you as well. So first of all, we'll get into the politics and the geopolitics eventually, uh, but I know you have a lot of contacts in Turkey. Can you describe for us, from what you're hearing from them, you know, the scale of devastation and, and what things are looking like right now on the ground? Yeah, I mean, the scale of devastation is a lot. Uh, you know, it's, it's really, uh, I think the word unprecedented gets tossed around a lot and may or may not apply to this, but look, a lot of people are, are suffering right now. And it's, it sort of came at the worst possible time. Not that there's ever a good time for a massive earthquake to hit, but, um, it's the middle of winter, particularly harsh winter, um there's it hit in an area where there are already millions of traumatized syrian refugees um and it it hit in a part of the country at least in turkey and i would imagine in in northern syria that wasn't particularly earthquake proof despite turkey in its entirety being an earthquake zone um so i think this was just one thing after another just led to to the extreme devastation that that we're seeing. I mean, you've got almost 50,000 people who have lost their lives and and that number could go up just for context for people. The 1999 earthquakes which were almost as large and hit actually a much more populated area, there were about 20,000 people or less that that died from that. And so this is uh certainly on a scale that Turkey hasn't seen in in a very very long time. Can you break down the the death toll for us? I mean, do we have a sense of how many people have been killed in total and then how many people have been killed in Turkey versus Syria? And, you know, whether responders are still searching for people under the rubble? Yeah, so we're recording um, on February 20th. And, uh, you know, this is it's been three weeks now. And I think the rule of thumb is that uh, a human can go three minutes without oxygen, three days without water, and three weeks without food. And we're at the three-week mark. And so, you know, over the weekend, we saw some really miraculous um, mm. people being pulled from the rubble and dogs being pulled from the rubble and, and other things. I, I think, unfortunately, those those good news stories are going to be uh, become rarer and rarer until they're ultimately gone. About 46,000 deaths, I think, is what I was seeing um, before we started recording. And and it seems like about 40,000 plus are of those are from Turkey. The rest are from Syria. Um, I think those are probably an undercount, certainly on the Syria side. Um, and we can talk about Syria 
uh, it's it's a really inaccessible place where this struck, and and it's um, you know obviously a region that's dealing with its own historical problems since since the Arab Spring and and the Syrian civil war. So I, I think we don't know exactly on the Syrian side. I think the Turkey count is probably relatively accurate, but I think as as the we move from search and rescue to recovery and rebuilding, which is sort of the next stage. Um, after about three weeks, you, like I said, anticipate not being able to find people, unfortunately. And so you kind of um, come in with the cranes and the bulldozers and, and try to actually clear off. And I, and I would imagine, you know, there's still going to be thousands of people who are missing into, into perpetuity. So let's start in Syria, uh, where, as you've said, as you, as you hinted at, the confirmed death toll has been significantly lower than the death toll in Turkey, beyond you know a potential undercount. Why is that? Who who lives in that part of the country, and and what's it like there? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a part of Syria that has uh, really been on the front lines of the Syrian civil war. This is where the Assad regime in Damascus has the least amount of control. This is where the rebels are. This is where um, sort of those Islamic uh, extremist groups ha have been roaming around. Um, northeastern Syria is where the Kurds are. Um, and so this the sort of more autom uh, autonomous Kurdish region is in the northeast. And that wasn't as affected by the earthquake. But this northwest region that borders Turkey is where, imagine, there's millions of Syrian refugees in Turkey right now, and a lot of them are in this area. So you can imagine that there are internally displaced people that are just on the Syrian side of that border, right? And and I think the last thing I saw was over 4 million people in, in that part of Syria are still in need of humanitarian assistance, and that was the day before the earthquake. So you can imagine that these are people who are living in places like Aleppo that have essentially been destroyed, um, by the by the civil war and now you've got the few hospitals that were up and running to to um you know address the casualties of the civil war which is not over yet um i, I think there's been movement in the international community especially in the middle east syria's neighbors to to kind of move on from syria and there's certainly syria fatigue uh, in in the aid community and the diplomatic community, it's just been such a such a quagmire for so long. But it's it's not a quagmire for the people that are there. I mean, they're suffering, and and they were before the earthquake. So I, I saw something that about two hundred thousand people are homeless in that part of uh, Syria. I I gotta believe that that's an undercount um, and and a sort of a broad approximation. There's um, you know, this is just one thing after another for these poor folks. Right. So, I mean, this is a region of the country where so much of the fighting over the past decade has taken place to where so many internally displaced people have fled. How will this event impact flows of migrants from Syria to Turkey, which, of course, has taken millions of refugees since the start of the war and importantly, between Syria and Europe? Yeah, I, I think this is the this is the you know, zillion dollar question that every European leader would like to know out of this. Um, it's something that I'm sure President Erdogan in Turkey is also thinking about. I think right now borders remain fairly closed. 
um, and the, the damage to the infrastructure is pretty significant. And, and if you think about it, the Syrians from that part of the country would seek refuge in Turkey. Well, this, the part of Turkey that they sought refuge in is now largely destroyed. Um, and so they would have to go further into other parts of Turkey. And it's Istanbul, which is where a lot of kind of relatives of, of Syrians are, uh, I think around half of the Syrian refugees have made their way into the super city, broader Istanbul area. And Istanbul remains off limits to, to people. The way that it works is like, if I'm a Syrian refugee in Turkey, I get assistance, I can, I can sort of live, um, quote unquote, safely, but I can't move. I don't have freedom of movement to go wherever I want within the country. And so that that's sort of problematic because the the only places that these Syrians can go are really these, you know, places that have have been in the in the epicenter of of the earthquake. So I think they're the Syrians in in the northwest are really caught between a, a rock and a hard place. Uh, if they can't go to Turkey, are they going to make it to to Europe? Uh, your your guess is as good as mine. Can you can you remind us quickly why are there so many Syrian refugees in Turkey? What is the interplay here between Syria, Turkey, and Europe? Definitely, I you know when the Syrian civil war broke out um, uh, around 2011, this is sort of the broader Arab Spring was going on. A lot of those areas, the the Idlibs and the and the Aleppo's in in northwest Syria were were the hotbeds of kind of the rebellion uh, against the Assad regime in Damascus. Geographically speaking, Damascus is further south. It's closer to Jordan. Um, and these areas, uh, including the Kurdish areas, were further north, bordering Iraq and, and Turkey. And so if civilians are getting caught in the crossfire, they're going to go to wherever they can to seek safety. And, and for years and years, Turkey was the the safest place for them to go. And if there's one thing we know about forced displacement around the world, it's, you know, people go as far as they can to receive assistance and to be safe, right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be a refugee. Um, so that you're going to, you know, Ethan, if you're, if the house next door to yours in, in Aleppo blows up, you're going to be like, all right, Let's get the kids, let's get in the car and let's go and let's go as as close as we can to home because we want to come back home. Right. But not so far that, you know, or not so close that, that we're still at risk. And that for so long was Turkey. Uh, and Turkey still to this day, I believe, has the largest per capita um number of refugees out of any country in the world. Um, and, and so, you know, kudos to Turkey for accepting all of those Syrian refugees. I think what what we're seeing now is, and, and I think this is the outstanding question for the European governments as they're looking at this is like, look, Turkey's dealing with problem after problem after problem. It's the economy, it's inflation, and oh, by the way, it's the Syrian refugees and now the earthquake. And it just is a you know, one thing after another for Turkey. And so at what point does Turkey be like, look, we can't, we can't deal with this anymore. You know, assistance is one thing and assistance in terms of, you know, blankets and, and tents, but also in terms of money. And that seems to be coming to a certain extent, at least to the Turkish side, but 
at some point you got to provide places for people to live and, and, you know, kids to go to school and all that stuff. And so I think the longer this goes on, uh, the harder and harder it's going to get. And, and, you know, if you think about it in terms of um, just kind of like a, a clogged pipe sort of building up with water, you know, it's at some point it's got to release. And I don't know what that release valve is. It's been Europe in the past, but who knows? Right. I mean, to your point, the 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 grand bargain here that we saw in 2016 was that Europe would pay Turkey to accept migrants that it wasn't willing to accept. And, you know, to your question, is that going to change? It doesn't seem likely or that Europe is ready, willing and able to to do that, given war raging in their their eastern flank. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Brussels and, and Ankara would both take issue with the, your framing there, but it, but essentially that's <laughs> what it was in, in 2016. I mean, the Turkish government is is well aware of the burden that it is bearing, and it is, um, you know, pretty quick to remind folks of that burden. And so I could I could see them potentially trying to leverage this into a, a grand bargain 2.0 or something like that. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think this is still so fresh that who, you know, anybody who tells you for certain what's going to happen is, is either delusional or lying. You have an amazing map in your recent article for CSIS. Uh, that's the Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, that we'll link to in the show notes that shows how close the earthquakes epicenters were to major refugee locations in southern Turkey. What were living conditions like for refugees there? I think the living conditions for the refugees, again, this has been going on since 2011 and it's 2023 now. And so you've got, you've got, you know, babies who were born uh, to refugee parents who were now almost teenagers. And I think the reality is that as much as many of these Syrians would have liked to have gone home, their kids are growing up going to Turkish school and speaking Turkish. A lot of the Syrians have gotten work in that area. Look, Ethan, this is a part of Turkey that like 10% of Turkish GDP comes from this region that was hard hit. Uh, 9% of Turkish exports come from the same region. So there's, you know, it's rural, it's industrial, but that means there's a lot of jobs. Not not to say yeah. that every Syrian has a job there and, and then there's not issues between Turks and Syrians, but, um, you know, the the governments, the local governments in that part of Turkey, I think, have done a reasonably good job at, at trying to to deconflict the normal tension when there are displacement scenarios. Obviously, it's strained resources. There's one town called Kilis right on the border between Turkey and, and Syria that doubled in population. They went from 100 to 200,000 people. And so you can almost overnight, right? And you can imagine the strain that that puts on on uh, on that host community. Uh, look, I think life has been challenging, of course, but what you don't see in that part of Turkey is a ton of refugee camps, for example. Mm. You know, you've got um, Rohingya in Bangladesh in the largest refugee camp in the world. You've got, um, Uganda's got massive sort of Congolese and South Sudanese refugee camps. Kenya's got, you know, multi-generational refugee camps. I think that's not what we're seeing in Turkey. We're seeing more of um, kind of a um, assimilation into the 
the the local communities there not to say that it's been easy but but that's certainly what it was like now that means that a lot of these syrians that were there were in some of these buildings that just collapsed right so like not that i wish a refugee camp and a tent on anyone but a tent collapsing is very different than a 16 uh story apartment building collapsing yeah i mean i think that seems to me to be the link between the abnormally high death toll in Turkey and the lower death toll in Syria. In Syria, so much of the infrastructure and so many communities were already broken. In Turkey, these were somewhat hastily made buildings, right, that uh, just collapsed on people because they weren't built to sustain an earthquake of that magnitude. Yeah, which is criminal. Let's call yeah. a spade a spade. Um, I think in Syria, it's it's not just the destruction, it's um, uh, sort of lower population density. And I think in certain of these towns, like I said, especially after the Syrians came, not all of the Syrians that came to Turkey were poor. Right. You know, I think people forget that actually Syria, Syria and Syrians had lots of money back in the day and they would come and they would invest in Turkey and they would buy factories and everything. So a lot of those folks would come early in the, in the civil war and, and they would invest in these parts of Turkey. Well, you know, contractors saw that builders saw that and they said, okay, you know, let's make these places more dense. Let's build new housing um, the Turkish government didn't want to do tents and they didn't want to do refugee camps. So that was an economic opportunity for these for these builders. I mentioned that that the poor construction, despite Turkey sitting on multiple fault lines, is criminal. And I and I do believe that. Um, but I think one thing that's not getting as much attention as it probably should is is that enforcement of standards was also low. Right. Like this is not just contractors cutting corners. This is perhaps poor funding to uh, inspectors, building inspectors, perhaps not enough of them, perhaps they weren't trained, or perhaps they were on the take. I don't know what the deal is, but there should be lots of investigations, not just into contractors and throwing contractors in jail. That's very satisfying, and it gets sort of headlines. But I think there's a governance issue here as well. You, you hinted at this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you'd also pull this thread a little bit about how Syrians were welcomed into to Turkish communities that hosted them and, and what relations were like between uh, displaced people and, and communities that had been there for a long time. Yeah. So I, I, I study human mobility, so refugees, migration, et cetera, around the world. And it's really striking to me how every context that I've ever looked at, these sort of vulnerable people on the move tend to be blamed for everything under the sun. Um, it happens in our country. It yeah. happens in really any country around the world. And I don't think Turkey is any exception to that. Uh, I think that there's certainly um, voices on the sort of conservative political right, especially who were, who were sort of trafficking in the same xenophobia that some folks um, outside of Turkey do vis-a-vis migrants and refugees. I mean, you only have to look to the 2015-2016 European quote-unquote migration crisis that led to the grand bargain that you mentioned um, to see that this is an easy political win for folks. Uh, you know, I've, I've sort of 
none of this is a joking matter, but I've sort of joked over time that um, if you're a local politician in like a, a border region, if you're a local Colombian politician and there's Venezuelans coming across the board, the quickest way to lose your next election is to be like, yeah, bring them all, come in. <laughs> Let's give them all the services, let, you know, let their kids go to school and all that. And I think that's, you know, there are certain towns, especially in Southern Turkey that have really bucked that trend and they have taken on this challenge. Uh, I mentioned Kilis and, and that's one of them. I, I visited there in, in 2018 and I think they've done a really remarkable job or they had before the earthquake trying to, to figure out a way that they could coexist with their, with their Syrian brethren. That having been said, I, I think it's, this is the easiest pawn in in you know powerful people's political games. Um, you know, vulnerable people on the move are, are a very easy pawn, and so I, I would imagine that we're going to be seeing a lot more of this, especially in the wake of such a, a, a devastating travesty uh, and tragedy like this one. I, you'll you'll see like, oh, why are we supporting them versus us? You know, this sort of tendency towards nativism as opposed to just you know, trying to, to support vulnerable people no matter where they're from. So now, by now you've, you've painted a, a pretty horrific picture of people fleeing. I tend to war. do that. I tend yeah. to do that. I'm, I'm so sorry. You're not the most fun guy to chat with. I'm so sorry. I'll try to be uh, fun next time. Okay. <laughs> so you've painted this picture uh, of people fleeing civil war only to find themselves trapped in unsafe, sometimes unwelcoming places, then an earthquake strikes. I mean... You mentioned rock in a hard place. I don't think that cuts it. I'm not sure there's an analogy that can describe that sort of trauma. I'd welcome you to try. Uh, are you worried about the risk of intercommunal violence or extremism stemming from this event? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I think in the short term, not so much. I mean, there's been some evidence of um, violence, but I think that's like existing bad actors taking advantage of ungoverned spaces which is a really wonky way of saying like when there's no services, when there's no government, you know, like people that were going to be bad people anyways, see that as an opportunity. I don't want to make some sort of conjecture. I'm not a philosopher and I'm not going to comment on human nature here, but there are some certainly bad people that are taking advantage of this. I think in the short term, people are really focused, certainly in the first three weeks, they were really focused on saving as many people as possible. And I think one thing to watch is going to be, you know, are people actually held accountable, not just contractors, not just construction workers, but um, are governments held accountable, are not just backward looking accountability, but like when they are building back, are they building back more earthquake proof? Um, are, have we learned? Because one thing that's, that's, uh, an additional tragedy out of all of this is that we've seen this movie before in 1999. I, you know, I, I wrote that piece that you mentioned um, on the night that the earthquake happened. And I, and I, I basically wrote it because I looked at all these photos of the destruction and I saw one apartment building standing, one knocked down, one standing, one knocked down. That's, that's earthquake proofing right there. One building did and the other building didn't. And, and the fact that, that 
that was the same thing that I was seeing in 1999. I lived in Turkey in 1999. I lived through those earthquakes and I, I sort of mobilized my high school to, to like provide some humanitarian assistance. Um, and, and when we would go to these places, you see the same thing, you know, one building completely crumbled and then the other seemingly just fine. Can you tell us what happened after the earthquake in 1999? How did communities respond? Why wasn't there the earthquake proofing? that would have been required in this case. Yeah, I mean, there was, and this is gets back to your, will there be violence question a little bit too. I, I think there wasn't after the 1999 tragedies because there was such a public reckoning of um, not just contractors, but the people who were responsible for making sure that, you know, the inspectors, the, the government. Um, and there, you know, for a good year, 18 months, this was at least in Turkish news. I think the the reality is by the time this, this podcast hits, the world won't have moved on, but like, there's a new thing. President Biden was in Kiev today. That's the, that's the news, right? There so, are two more earthquakes in Turkey. Today. There was an earthquake in Hatay, uh, um, you know, just, just down the road from the epicenter of the last one, six point, whatever. Um, so I, I think there's there's going to be new things that that take up the news. But the question to me is going to be for Turks, do they feel like there is some accountability? Do they feel like there's some recourse? There's an election coming up. Do they hold people accountable at the ballot box? And I think if the answer is no to all of those, then I think you you run the risk of of violence. I think you run the risk of people feeling like they have no no other option. I, I hope we don't get there. Um, but I, I certainly think that that's plausible. Today's show is sponsored by one of my favorite newsletters, 1440. The team from 1440 monitors scores of news sites to find the stories that matter the most from science and culture to business, politics, even sports. They then pull the most important pieces together into a single digest every weekday morning. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. Let's let's broaden the scope. Let's talk about diplomatic, geopolitical implications. Uh, first, in Syria, the war there has started to slow a bit. It seems like uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's forces can claim victory, more or less. Uh, will this help Syrian President Bashar al-Assad re-enter the fold? I think it's possible. Um, I think we're already seeing some governments uh, do exactly what Assad wants. So what Assad wants is he wants assistance that's going to these areas that are hit in by the earthquake in, in northern Syria, again, that are largely not under government control. Or if they are, it's a it's a really tenuous control. He wants assistance for those people to be going by and through the Syrian government in Damascus. And what the international community is saying, what Syrians in the north are saying, what the Kurds are saying is, no, 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 let's get assistance down from Turkey. And Syria has blocked that at the UN. They've tried to block it at the UN, this sort of cross-border aid has been a has been a political lightning rod, geopolitical lightning rod for for a while now, and I think what you're starting to see is is some instances of where like the Tunisians or the Saudis are saying like, okay, maybe we'll go through Assad, maybe we'll go through 
he's he's the devil we know you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and it remains to be you know assad is is ruthless um and but he's also a pretty savvy political operator so it could be that he is able to leverage this into um normalizing relations with a few countries. There's certainly Syria fatigue. I mentioned it earlier in, in, in the context of foreign assistance, but like, I'm sure lots of diplomats just want this to go away. And, and uh, uh, that's tragic in my humble opinion. I mean, there's lots of people who have suffered under the Assad regime. And, and for for us to sit here in, in the comfort of our homes and say that like, oh, this problem should go away is, is the epitome of selfishness. But I, you know, I'm I'm sort of channeling some of what I'm hearing and what I'm what I'm feeling uh, from other people who are, are closer to this. So I, yeah, I think long-winded way of saying it, it, this could actually be, um, you know, you never want to talk about opportunities in a time like this. But for for Bashar al-Assad, it it certainly could be a geopolitical opportunity. I read something uh, that uh, a Syrian refugee in northwest Syria said sort of like uh, this earthquake achieved what Assad wanted to achieve for a decade and just utterly wiped out any will to resist, uh, destroyed people's homes in a way that human-made disasters couldn't, this natural disaster, finish the job. You know, you're seeing this in eastern Ukraine as well, right? The, the hollowing out of infrastructure, the the inability for civilians to live there is sort of the goal, you know, when you have right. an Assad or a Putin and they don't care about human life. They don't care about anything other than their own power and ego or whatever it is they care about. And and so the, the hollowing out of those places is certainly part of, of the goal. And I, and I think um, Mother Nature did Assad a solid in that regard. And, and Turkey, I mean, you wrote that the earthquake could, quote, provide an opportunity for Turkey to resolve its geostrategic issues, end quote. Um, is that, does that sound like something you would write? That does sound like something I would write. (laughs) And does that, does that still seem like a a possibility almost three weeks later? I mean, look, I think Turkey has, Turkey has a number of issues and we've talked about them. You know, they have the highest inflation in the world. They've got uh, a currency that's really weak. You know, people's pensions are getting wiped out. The economy's in, in the tanks. There's high unemployment, high youth unemployment. There's a, a really, really important election this year. And it's not just an important election because every election is important, which I do believe. This is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the modern Turkish Republic. Modern Turkish Republic was founded in 1923. And so there's sort of symbolic value for Tayyip Erdogan to want to lead Turkey into the next two, you know, into the next uh, century. And so a, a lot is on the line for him domestically. I think how he responds and and how his government responds, how they're held accountable, how people view the response to the earthquake will probably play a role, positive or negative, in, in the election. I think that there's what I was writing about was really in the context of something I saw in 1999. Um, there were Turkish and Greek warships that were a stone's throw from one another in the Mediterranean Sea. They were really squaring off. Things were bad. These are NATO allies. Turkey and Greece are both members of NATO, and they were on the verge over some rocks in the Mediterranean Sea that some people call islands, that literally rocks, like there's a couple sheep on them. They were, you know, going to go to blows over this. Um, 
And I, not to say that that's where we are now, but but Turkish and Greek relations are not super great right now. Um, and there's been lots of challenges. And so what we saw after the 1999 earthquake was Greeks immediately sent search and rescue rescue teams. There was actually a subsequent earthquake in Greece. Turkey reciprocated. Not to say that everything was hunky-dory afterwards and they were all friends and held hands, but like it did de-escalate tensions. And I do think that there's an opportunity, at least in the context of Greece, for that to happen. Really hesitate to talk about opportunities in this, but I, I wrote that piece early on because I felt like as people were covering this, you needed to to have the full picture. Like obviously the focus needs to be on saving as many people as possible. But now that we've hit that three-week point, we need to be moving on to think about, you know, what does rebuilding look like? How does Turkey handle this? How can the international community help Turkey and Syria and the people affected there recover? And that's really going to be a longer term issue. For for what it's worth, Errol, we're in the, the dead of winter here in, in Washington, DC. I would do a lot for uh, a little plot on an Aegean island right now. <laughs> Last question. Um, you mentioned it briefly. I mean, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Turkey this week promising $100 million in recovery aid. How would you rate the global community's response thus far? I probably as good as it could have been um is is my answer I mean I it's it's never what's needed right. you mentioned there's a lot of fatigue there's a lot of Syria fatigue certainly but I I think it's to answer your question you have to have a Syria related answer and then a Turkey related answer the Syria related answer is no not even close right like the international community has been unable to respond to the challenges in northern Syria. Like it took, I think, over a week for the first search and rescue team from outside of Syria to make its way into these affected areas. That that is just a disaster. Um, there's all sorts of reasons, legal, geopolitical, etc., why that was the case. I don't care. That's terrible. I think when it comes to Turkey, um, where obviously more people. Uh, we think that more people have have died and, and there's more widespread destruction. Um, the Turkish government did open themselves up and, and over, I think, 40 or 50 countries said, OK, we're going to send search and rescue teams from the United States. We sent a team from, I think, L.A., L.A. County and Fairfax County, Virginia. There were search and rescue teams, dogs and, you know, detection stuff. And they hopped on a plane almost immediately and, and were off. Um, that's about as much as people can do, countries can do. There was lots of similar assistance from, from Europe. I think where it's going to be hard is moving forward, right? Because you've still got Ukraine, you've got Haiti, you've got, you know, Venezuela, you've got all of these crises that are just prolonging. They're not going anywhere. And then you've got a renewed crisis in Turkey and Syria, uh, to its credit, the U.S. has promised um, not just 100, it was, I think, totaling $185 million in, in humanitarian assistance. Does that translate or does that continue into reconstruction assistance? You know, do we look to the World Bank and others to, to help reconstruct this really devastated yet critical part of the Turkish economy? Um, and help people rebuild lives there. I mean, that's going to be the the open question. The last thing I'll say on the response was, you know, this 
there were a lot of NGOs, you know, non-governmental organizations, nonprofits, the Red Cross, the Red Crescent, et cetera, that were in that area of Turkey doing response for Syria. And they were affected as well, right? Like lots of aid workers who lived in places like Gaziantep lost their lives, lost their, you know, their offices, their stockpiles of goods, you know, they, they were affected as well. It's really hard when an earthquake happens to respond quickly, because when you respond to a, another type of disaster, you can pre-position stuff. And there was stuff, tents, blankets, even some non-perishable foods that were in warehouses across that region of Turkey. Um, the the Turkish emergency response um, part of the government uh, had pre-positioned all this stuff, but but that stuff also got damaged and or destroyed, and the, and the roads that lead to and from there are damaged, and it's just like there's only so much you can do. So the the folks that came in with the helicopters were able to do like the U.S. were able to do some stuff, but um, obviously it's never enough. This episode is going to come out on the one year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. So the international community has a lot of, on its plate, and, and this is one of them. And I think in this case, uh, they really have to keep their eye on the ball. So I, I appreciate you coming on and uh, helping us stay focused on this. Yeah, thanks, Ethan. Good luck. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's been a great few weeks since we launched the podcast. The feedback has been so encouraging. Uh, if you like this show, both in its regular short format and these longer form interviews, please subscribe, leave us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast app and make sure to tell a friend about us. It would mean the world. Uh, I'll be back for another really exciting interview with an all-star guest in a couple weeks. I can't wait to bring it to you. Uh, But in the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday.